Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. This episode is brought to you by Snapple. Want to know another Snapple fact? The first hot air balloon passengers were a sheep, a duck, and a rooster. Ridiculous. Check out Snapple.com to find ridiculously flavored Snapple near you. The Starbucks Pistachio Latte will transport you to your happy place. The comforting flavor of pistachio, warm espresso and milk, all with a brown buttery topping. Make today a good day. Order ahead on the Starbucks app. It's time to let it roll. The podcast about how and why popular music happens with host Nate Wilcox. Be sure and subscribe to the Let It Roll podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Podomatic, and check out our website at LetItRollPodcast.com. This week, Nate is joined by author Adam Caress to discuss his book, The Day Alternative Music Died, The Struggle Between Art and Money for the Soul of Rock. In this episode, Adam makes the case that the death of Kurt Cobain led to an instant revision of music history and attempts to remind us of what the actual state of alternative music was in the halcyon days of the early 1990s before grunge was codified as a simple-to-copy formula that was relentlessly promoted by the music industry. Pop in those earbuds and enjoy. Welcome to the Let It Roll podcast. I'm your host, Nate Wilcox, and today I'm joined by Adam Caress, author of The Day Alternative Music Died, The Struggle Between Art and Money for the Soul of Rock. Adam, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Cool. And so what inspired you to write this book? Well, I think uh, a couple different things. Uh, first off, um, I think it had to do with uh, growing up in an era and coming of age in an era of music and coming to realize as I got older that that, uh, that era was being misremembered culturally and that there were kind of key things that had been left out of the dominant cultural narrative um, that, was, uh, that were important to that era musically, culturally, and so forth. So it came out of conversations with a lot of my friends in the music industry and other friends in bands and all that type of stuff and music fans who'd, who'd come of age and, you know, uh, Generation X, and uh, there just wasn't much written about the uh, alternative music era. And uh, there had been other countless books written about, you know, the uh, 60s music and 70s music. There was a really good book uh, called Our Band Could Be Your Life um, about the indie scene in the 1980s, but none of that really kind of got at um, the alternative music era. So I wanted to, you know, help shed some light on that. Cool, and I, I, I want to say I really enjoyed the book and found it uh, thought-provoking and, and definitely some points of analysis that clarified things that hadn't occurred to me. And, and the fundamental point, the day alternative music died, that's sort of a little bit of a trolling title, I assume. <laughs> well, I, I think that it, it, I think it means 
I think some people would think that that would mean that, you know, when Nirvana, the music, when, when Kurt Cobain died and I mean, that's what it refers to the day alternative music dies when Kurt Cobain died. And a lot of people would maybe take that, the common reading of that would be that, you know, that was a loss of Nirvana ended that era, but it really has to do with the way that, um, Nirvana's the myth and legacy was used to kind of corporatize alternative music, I think is the way that I meant it. Yeah. And, and that's what I, I found to be, uh, the key insight of the book and, and why I wanted to get you on the show, because we've been discussing sort of the cultural history of rock and roll music, especially the business and technological sides of it. And, and those aspects definitely impact the story you tell. And I want to quote uh, from your preface, the, um, the, this book is the story of the tensions between the competing aspirations to substantive artistry and commercial success within rock music. Um, mm-hmm. t- tell us a little bit about that. Well, in trying to tell the story of alternative music, um, I originally had just planned, planned to be kind of more hyper-focused on that era of the 80s and 90s and alternative music, and realized as I started getting deeper into researching that, that this, the, the tensions that existed between kind of commercial aspirations and artistic aspirations had gone, went back far earlier than that. So you know, went all the way back to the 1960s. And so uh, I wanted to, it ended up not being possible to tell that story and tell and explain why the changes that took place in alternative music were important without having kind of that broader scope as to where this fit into um, the larger rock music narrative and the way that, you know, commercial and artistic interests, that the tension there um, had existed for a long time before that. Yeah, and why did why did you choose to pick 1965 as your starting point? Well, I mean, I, I go into that some in the book, but um, I think prior to 1965, most rock music um, was perceived and actually was commercially motivated. It was, you know, it was just a, uh, it was another genre of pop music that um, there weren't these ar- artistic aspirations within it. It was a commercial genre and was perceived as such. You know, folks like Elvis and Chuck Berry and a lot of the other kind of rock songwriters like Lieber and Stoller, Carol King and um, like the, the bro building type folks, the people who were writing music were writing music for, a com- you know, to be commercially successful. That was the primary goal of it. Somebody like Elvis never really aspired to be um, an artistic uh, thought leader or he didn't have anything particularly to say about culture even though the, the person of Elvis, the person of Chuck Berry, and some of these different artists were important culturally, that wasn't their intent. So, um, in They weren't self-conscious. Yeah, they weren't self-consciously trying to create, you know, meaningful art. Um, that doesn't mean, that, like I said, that there wasn't meaningful art created. That just wasn't the goal. So the, there wasn't any such thing as rock criticism at that time that was that took rock music seriously because because of that because it was mostly commercial music so 1965 was a turning point um i think the advent of bob dylan as a rock artist was really influential there introducing kind of um artistic aspirations he was someone who was very interested very influenced by historical poetry um, by cultural movements by political influences and so he was really a trailblazer there, and, um, and 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 some of the bands that existed prior to '65, like the Beatles, who had been kind of just a commercial pop group prior to '65. Around 1965, they really started trying to 
create um, substantive art at that time, dig deeper into their own um, emotional, um, express their own personal emotions rather than just writing something like, I want to hold your hand. All of a sudden you have, by the time you get to Sgt. Pepper and the, the White Album and the stuff that they did in the second half of that decade, they're really kind of exploring artistic creation and pushing the boundaries of that. So I think 65 was a real, was a real clear uh, shift as far as that was concerned. Cool. And, and yeah, um, a lot of, like in my conversations with Ed Ward that we've recorded, I think a lot of people make a distinction between rock and roll before 1965 and then rock music after 1965, but mm-hmm. it's a pretty weak terminology because, you know, it, it's the same word <laughs> over and over again. So I can see where uh, you sort of, expand rock all the way back to 1956. And another factor that you isolate as being key to that development is, is the emergence of serious rock criticism. Um, Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, talk about that a little bit. Why do you think that mattered and, and how it impacted the story of the 80s and the 90s? Well, I mean, starting in, in the late 60s when you had, you know, kind of the advent of Crawdaddy and Rolling Stone and Cream Magazine, all these magazines that treated rock music seriously as art. I mean, Music criticism had existed for a long time. Um, criticism in other artistic fields had existed for a long time prior to the 1960s, um, but they didn't really uh, encompass rock music. So, um, music criticism at that time was focused more on classical music, on jazz, on these um, genres that were perceived as having artistic credibility. So, in the late 60s, um, I think as a result of the, the kind of the deeper and more substantive artistic nature of the music that emerged, um, it, would see, it was only natural that there would be people who would take it seriously and want to write about it seriously and want other people to take it seriously. So that, that was, there was a big part of that transformation in the late 60s was rock criticism. And, and it put rock music in a total, totally different cultural space, um, or t- totally different space in the culture as far as how seriously it was perceived. All of a sudden you had, you know, the Beatles were being asked questions about um, their their perspective on Vietnam or their perspective on drugs or these other things that were larger cultural issues that no one would have no one would have thought of asking Elvis about that. You know, there's that line by Peter Yarrow from Peter Paul and Mary um, talking about Elvis that you know people adored Elvis Presley but no one cared what his opinion was about anything. Yeah. Um, I think that ch- that changed drastically in the late '60s where people did care um, as the counterculture became a serious cultural force. Uh, rock artists kind of became spokespeople for that, um, that cultural point of view and having serious rock criticism was, was a natural, um, natural, uh, addition to the cultural, to the cultural landscape at that time. And this, this tension between art and commerce, uh, comes to a head or comes, you know, is personified by the story of Kurt Cobain, which, you refer to that struggle as a tortured psychosis. Mm-hmm. Elaborate on that a bit. Well, I think that um, I, I think that rock had had always been, you know, all the way back in the nineteen, all the way back to the nineteen fifties, had had commercial aspirations, um, and then when you add artistic aspirations into the mix, there was this expectation that rock artists would not just be um, entertainers, but they would also have something to say, something to offer. Um, they would be, it would be, it was a genre that was expected to, you know, have ideas, have perspectives on truth, have, you know, commentary on the human condition, all of those things that art traditionally has. 
Um, and so there was always a tension. And by the time you get to um, a band like Nirvana, they came up in kind of this uh, post-punk indie um, atmosphere. With uh, They were on an indie label, Sub Pop. And there was, in a lot of that indie space, there was a real disdain for commercial aspirations, for trying to, it was perceived as selling out if you were a band or an artist that was trying to be commercially popular. But Kurt Cobain had also grown up listening to commercially popular music. He was, in addition to, you know, his kind of indie, indie post-punk pedigree, he was also a fan of you know 70, 70s bands you know that uh, whether it was uh queen or the beatles um and i think that being somewhat of a social outcast himself he was uh, interested in the validation of commercial success and popularity so with within himself every time there was a commercial success well the, the part of him felt validation for that a part of him also felt like he was kind of selling out his indie punk um, ideals. And so that every time, so he felt guilty at the same time. So he never could, uh, unlike a, a purely commercial artist where uh, that doesn't necessarily have that pain of conscience, that was something that he felt deeply and, and was always worried that he was going to be perceived as a sellout. And we'll get back to Kurt Cobain. I want to I touch on a couple of points that you hit you know, you, you do a nice summary of the rock biz from 65 to, to roughly 80, 82, when our story really takes off. But I want to touch on a couple of things that happened in that period that you brought out. One was the way Atlantic Records and Led Zeppelin bypassed the rock critics as gatekeepers. Tell mm -hmm. us a little bit yeah. about that and why that was a critical moment in musical history. Well, it, just as, you know, just as criticism was starting to gain, you know, cultural credibility and in the late 1960s, um, critics really did have an influence. Rolling Stone was kind of the Bible of the counterculture and, uh, and these other uh, music magazines and even criticism that existed elsewhere, whether it was Playboy magazine, New York Times, all of these different um, outlets were taking rock music seriously and they had become, for, there was a short period there where they were the gatekeepers as far as um, what would be successful or not. People were look, taking their cues from criticism. And what happened with Led Zeppelin was interesting because they were not um, initially embraced by critics. Um, they were seen as, uh, that their music wasn't perceived as being artistically substantive, um, that it, 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 yes, it was loud and, and uh, it, it had all of these uh, rock elements. It was blues based and, uh, but they weren't, they weren't favored by critics. So what Atlantic Re records was forced to do was try and find another way to get them on this new independent, um, uh, there were all these new FM stations. It wasn't just AM top radio anymore. There were all these FM independent radio stations that were playing um, countercultural music. And um, the easiest way to get accepted in that was having, you know, critical approval. Well, Led Zeppelin didn't have critical approval. So Atlantic came up with this uh, through Mario uh, Medius, who was one of their um, PR people, uh, discovered that instead you couldn't just pay the radio stations to play the music. The uh, countercultural FM stations had principles where unlike the AM top 40 stations, which where payola 
um, which is paying paying to have your song on the on the radio was a common practice that wasn't going to work in the FM world. Um, so what Mario Medias did was instead of paying these FM stations to play Led Zeppelin's music, he would go he, he you know load up his car with free free Atlantic records, and <laughs> and also he had access to a lot of uh, high quality marijuana, and would go around and kind of schmooze these FM DJs. Um, with kind of hip conversation and and uh, good weed and uh, become their friends. And then, he, you know, kind of say, hey, now that we have this kind of friends, you know, rapport, why don't you guys check out this band Led Zeppelin? I know the critics didn't like them, but uh, I feel like they're, um, that there's somebody you should play. And slowly over time, over the course of about um, six or eight months, he was able to start getting Led Zeppelin radio play on these FM stations without the, even though critics um, weren't fans. So that was something that was pretty new. And it changed uh, kind of the power structure right around, you know, 69, 70, where a record label um, was then able to kind of bypass the, criti- bypass the critics and get bands played who weren't necessarily critically approved. So that was, that was something that was new. And um, it, it affected the way that critics continued to perceive Led Zeppelin, even as they expanded artistically and, and, and went in different directions. Um, critics continued to not be fans of them, in part, I think, because they resented the fact that they'd become pop- popular without their approval. Yeah, and, and, and that sort of leads to an, another aspect of rock star culture that you talk about, and you quote Lester, Lester Bang saying, you know, as the rock stars become fa- rich and famous, they're isolated from their crowds. And Lester Banks said, it's no news now that the reason most of rock's establishment is dried up creatively is they've cut themselves off from the real world, as is, as exemplified by their fans. And that sets them up for the punk rock backlash. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, and definitely. And talk about that a little bit and, and why it failed. Well, I mean, just to go, to go back to what kind of Banks was criticizing there, I, I think that... Um, what happened in the in the 1970s was this the advent of rock star culture, this idea of sex, drugs, and rock and roll. That this mythology, this larger than life image. You know, you had these bands making lots of money. They were playing to stadiums. They were um, they were they had access to all kinds of groupies. They had access to drugs. They had tons of money. And in doing that, yeah, like Bang said, it separated them from kind of the common the common people in their audience, they were perceived as more of a hero worship aspect than it was a relating aspect. Um, so, it, so that there was a, there ended up being a backlash against, against that whole rock star culture that was exemplified by, um, by punk music. I, I think uh, in the book, I, I focus on the clash um, as kind of the archetypal punk band, just because of the influence that they ended up having on um, uh, post-punk culture and alternative culture in the eighties. Um, but yeah, they, they, they were definitely, uh, something very different. I mean, they, they saw themselves, their fan, they saw themselves on the same level as their fans. They didn't, their, their aspiration wasn't to become larger than life. It was to, um, be relation, re- relational with their fans. And so there's a story that's, you know, related in the book where, um, you know, they, they would invite, fans back to wherever, when they were on tour, they would invite fans back to the hotel where they were staying, you know, hang out at the hotel bar, have drinks with them. If the, some of their fans needed a place to crash, they'd crash on the floor of their hotel rooms. 
And so that was a very different ethos than kind of the rock star culture where, you know, you have bodyguards protecting you from the fans and then just picking out, you know, a few like pretty young girls to send up to your hotel room. It was, they were, they were more immersed. Um, they saw themselves as one with, with their fans rather than above them. And yet they still ultimately sort of collapsed under the pressure of the audience, you know, by the time they break in, break through in the radio in the U S and have a gold album, play the us festival to big stadiums, open for the who to big stadiums. And then they completely implode. Um, And so I, and, and, and we'll get to, you know, Kurt Cobain also will struggle to resolve that. But, but around the same time that the clash breaks through, there's a DJ in Los Angeles, uh, mm-hmm. Rodney Bigenheimer, who's you know been around since the '60s, but he starts playing punk uh, on his station on his like midnight show on K Rock in LA, which wasn't a powerful station. But tell us a little bit about the story of K Rock and how they created what we came to know as alternative radio in the '80s. Yeah, well, I I, I actually I, when I was 13, I moved to Los Angeles, and this was um, summer of 1988, and so I was just kind of it's kind of the age where you stop, you know, going to your parents or, you know, for music taste, you'd want to find your own music that, that you relate to and all that. And so right at that time I moved out to Los Angeles and, and found this radio station K rock that was playing stuff that I hadn't heard before. I, I, I'd been living in suburban Illinois. And, uh, so I moved out to Los Angeles and found K rock and they just had all this great underground music that I'd never heard of before. Um, and, so I, I had been aware of K-Rock, um, but until I started doing the research for the book, I wasn't aware of how formational they were on alternative radio in general. So, um, yeah, back in the late 1970s, Rodney Bingenheimer had started playing punk music on this, you know, tiny, not successful radio station that was just barely struggling to pay the bills. Um, and that wouldn't have been a story in and of itself, except that they, they had a uh, new program director come in, Rick Carroll, who came in and was able to take that music that Bingenheimer and some of the other DJs were playing and turn it into a brand. And what they called it was, this was right around 1980, he called it Rock of the 80s, which at the time was synonymous with Rock of the Future. Um, And it was a lot of post-punk music, punk music, new wave music. And they really created a template that ended up catching on all over the country, not just uh, not just from its organic influence, but Rick Carroll ended up being hired to be a consultant to help radio stations transition to this new format. Um, we, looking back on it, it's you know we call it alternative music at the time. It was um, it, they, they called it rock of the '80s. But he consulted on all around the country to help radio stations um, move into that genre. So um, it became really kind of a widespread phenomenon. So between kind of these rock of the eighties alternative stations. And then a lot of the college college radio stations around the country, um, you had a lot of these, um, radio stations playing the same kind of music, which wasn't necessarily what was mainstream at the time. And you also talk about the sort of social role that this music played. And, and even though it was relatively unpopular, like you point out how, and as late as 1989, uh, none of the songs on K rocks top 20 had made a billboards top 20. Mm-hmm. the highest number one you know the number one on the k-rock chart was number 68 on the billboard chart but that it served this function as a refuge for freaks and outsiders who existed on the fringes of the mainstream mm-hmm. yeah i think that was definitely true i think that 
what was interesting at the time in the 1980s was the rock music industry was so big and so successful that they were able to have kind of these, uh, even the major labels were able to have these vanity labels and were able to keep these artists on their rosters um, who really only had cult followings. They weren't going to be hugely popular, but they weren't going to be dropped by the record label because the record label had enough money they could afford to do this. And it helped their reputation over the long term. It helped build them, uh, helped build them loyal fan bases. So you have that going on the major labels. You also have these alternative radio stations that were kind of had their own subcultures. They were, they would put on concerts and festivals. And then you had all these independent labels that were popping up in the 1980s. Um, whether it's SST or Sub Pop, Homestead, you know, all these twin tone all over the country. And they had their own subcultures as well. And taken together, all of these different factors created this um, pretty sustainable subculture, even though it wasn't mainstream, it wasn't tiny either. Um, but then I, I think that the, the moment you can point to where that, those subcultures all kind of became united um, was when uh, MTV uh, started this radio show called 120 Minutes, which started at, again, like Pingenheimer show at midnight, you know, on Sunday nights. There would be two hours where they'd play music from this alternative culture. And I think a lot of people who maybe were only aware of the music that was in their little subculture, subculture in their town realized that there were little subcultures all over the country um, and got to and started getting interested in you know the cross pollination of, of people finding out about music that way. Yeah, and, and and 120 minutes is definitely a key part of the story. But there's one little distinction that you make in the book between the alternative radio format, which would play both major label artists mm-hmm. that were in this category, like The Cure or Depeche Mode, but also independent label bands like Husker mm-hmm. Du or The Meat Puppets would get on there. And that distinction, the indie labels just didn't have the money to put out videos the way uh, mm-hmm. 120 right, Minutes yeah. did. But nonetheless, you know, you make the point that, that the 120 Minutes was a very eclectic uh, mix of musics that it wasn't just a particular one singular style. It was multiple styles united. Yeah. yeah, I think in the 1980s, alternative music, I mean, and the book chronicles how this shift happened, but um, in the 1980s, the alternative music wasn't a genre. It was, it just meant music that was an alternative to the mainstream. So you had all different types of music from all different parts of the country. Um, that were included under this alternative music umbrella. Eventually, in the 1990s, after, you know, Kurt Cobain died and and, um, there were a lot of corporate changes that happened as well, alternative came to be this genre. And and I think that that's one of the things that I thought was misremembered historically was when people look back and think alternative music, they think Nirvana, Pearl Jam, Green Day, uh, Matchbox 20, um, Bush, all these nineties bands that all kind of had this angsty male hard rock sound. Um, and that just wasn't the case in the eighties. There was, that was part of the mix for sure. But there were all these other, there were all kinds of female fronted bands. There was, uh, there was music that was hard. There was music that was more uh, gentle. There was more melodic. You had all these different things and alternative music included all those different musical genres. And yeah, they, they weren't, these radio stations weren't purists. They weren't playing only things that are on independent labels. Um, they were also playing stuff that was outside the mainstream that was on you know, major labels as well. And so then you come to Seattle, 
And what is it mm-hmm. about? What was it about Seattle that that made it, you know, sort of culturally unique and primed it to lead the way in the '90s? Well, one of the things about Seattle that was interesting in the Seattle music scene in the late 1980s was that it was really isolated from the mainstream. Um, no one was paying attention. We think now of Seattle as being this cool, hip city. You know, it's where Starbucks is from and, and the and grunge music. And it, it, it kind of, in the 90s, took on this you know, mythical, cool city you know, vibe. But in the late 1980s, it wasn't perceived as cool at all. There weren't talent scouts going out to Seattle to sign bands very much. Um, a lot of bands that were touring didn't even, Seattle was so far flung out in the west, Northwest that a lot of bands that were touring didn't even necessarily go through Seattle. They'd, you know, go to, they'd, they'd go up the West Coast to San Francisco and then, you know, come back to L.A. So it, there was this whole scene um, that, that developed um, kind of organically outside of the mainstream. And it, and, and it happened over time. Because no one was paying attention, it was a long time before people started, you know, trying to go there and kind of commercially capitalize on what was happening there. So um, there was this scene that was very well entrenched and well established long before anyone uh, in the rest of the country really knew about it. So you had these and, bands where, oh, go ahead. Well, I was just going to say, and, and, and you had a scene where bands felt completely comfortable mixing metal and punk. Well, yeah, I mean, you didn't have, and, you know, the, one of the things that a lot of alternative music in the 1980s was a reaction against or was trying not to sound like mainstream, you know, metal or glam metal, or, you know, by the 80s, metal, you know, was mostly like hair metal and the hairspray bands and all that type of stuff. So the, in, in a lot of the alternative scenes were, didn't want, they wanted to distance themselves from that. In Seattle, um, there wasn't uh, people because they weren't part of the, the, the larger kind of national uh, narrative of what was going on. The, the bands didn't really care. They didn't, they, they didn't see punk and, you know, hair metal as not necessarily antithetical. So you had this, you had these bands that were kind of these hybrids where you'd have a couple members of the band that might be, you know, hardcore indie punk bands, indie punk fans, and then and other ones might be glam metal fans. So, it was kind of this unique mix. It wasn't, um, it, it, it wasn't, it wasn't punk. It wasn't metal. It was just, it was something totally unique. And so that was allowed to develop over time. And that's where he kind of Nirvana came out of and Pearl Jam and Alice in Chains and, and, and all these and Soundgarden. Um, there, there wasn't really this, um, uh, there, there wasn't a divide in the same way there wasn't a lot of the other places in the country. And they also had an indie pop label, Sub Pop, that came along. And mm-hmm. Sub Pop had one unique promotional tactic involving the UK. <laughs> explain, yeah. explain how that worked. Well, Sub Pop, I mean, uh, Sub Pop was kind of the leading independent label in Seattle. And they were trying, but, but the, the label heads there, even though it was an independent label, unlike some of these other independent labels in the country, they really wanted to be commercially successful. And so they were trying to come up with, you know, anything they could to, you know, raise the profile of their label. And one of the things they did, because uh, in England, they didn't really have any necessarily idea that Seattle was totally uncool. Or, and so uh, they were able to invite over uh, British journalists and um, kind of create this mythology of what sub pop was and what these bands were and create kind of a little mini hype campaign about how cool Seattle was. 
And initially, the Seattle scene was recognized first uh, in England before it was recognized in the wider um, in, in the wider U.S. press, just because because of that strategy. Because whereas U.S. critics may have you know you know dismissed Seattle, oh that's that you know place that's not cool. In England, they didn't that that perception didn't exist, so um, they were able to get write-ups in Melody Maker and and, and ME um, in England about these kind of sub pop bands, you know, mud honey, who was a, was a band from Seattle that was on sub pop, you know, they, they were having trouble drawing people to their shows once when they got out of Seattle, but they went over to England and, uh, we were able to do a, you know, a British tour to sold out shows because of the, um, press they've been getting over there. And that, that was kind of, it was kind of surprising for them to be able to do that. Yeah. And then that, the the American media then paid attention to the British media and and mm-hmm. you know the whole thing really started to snowball and then mm-hmm. you know Nirvana comes into that scene and and you point out that Nirvana was kind of latecomers you know whereas Mudhoney or even the members of Pearl Jam had been in bands in the scene going back you know to the early eighties Cobain mm-hmm. and company were coming from Aberdeen uh, were younger. Uh, sort of latecomers and their mentor uh, Buzz Osborne of the Melvins. You've got a quote uh, from the oral history of Seattle Rock. Everybody loves our town. That that I wanted to read about Buzz, who had mentored Cobain and Novoselic of Nirvana. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then they he's talking about a pivotal show in Portland quite early in Nirvana's career before Dave Grohl was in the band, and and he says mm-hmm. this is. This is way before they got popular. That's what people don't get. Nirvana lined up for this shit. They put themselves in line to be aligned with horrible people. I blamed them for the whole thing. They got in line to be involved with horrible management, horrible booking agents, horrible everything. They didn't need to do it, but they did it. <laughs> yeah. I think that, I mean, that line is, is, is interesting because I think the idea that um, once there was kind of this mythology built up around Kurt Cobain, there was this idea that he was really a strictly kind of punk indie artist who didn't want to be popular. And I think what Buzz Osborne is saying there is uh, he contradicts that and says, you know, they wanted to be popular from the beginning. They, they lined up, they, they got, you know, booking agents and they got, they, they, they aligned themselves with people who they thought would help make them popular. I think when, when Buzz is talking about them being horrible, I think in some sense he means they're horrible because they were commercially minded. Um, and that was their, their primary goal. Um, but yeah, Nirvana does come to, the, to, come to Seattle late. Um, and, you know, the, the whole Seattle scene was established before, you know, Nirvana moved up there from Aberdeen. And, um, and in some sense, they, they were outsiders there. You know, Aberdeen was perceived as uncool by people in Seattle. I mean, if Seattle wasn't cool, Aberdeen was even less cool. So they had kind of an outsider complex. Even once they were um, in Seattle, they weren't necessarily embraced by the Seattle scene the same way that, you know, some of these acts, like you say, the members of Pearl Jam or Soundgarden or Mudhoney, they'd been around for years and had kind of their kind of social social scene that, Nirvana really was outsiders um, when they moved up there, and even up to the time that they became popular. And then one thing you draw out in your book is is the way Cobain kind of shifted musical mentors from uh, Buzz Osborne of the Melvins to Thurston Moore of Sonic Youth. And, and mm-hmm. something I'd never really thought about. I mean, I knew that Sonic Youth was had roots in, in the musical avant-garde, you know, in the, in the legit art scene in New York City, but I never really 
thought it through, but you talk about how they had been funded by wealthy benefactors from the beginning and how that Mm -hmm. was very different. And then you sort of explain the relationship between Sonic Youth and Geffen. What, What was the use of a band like Sonic Youth that never really moved massive units to a record label like Geffen? Yeah, I think that uh, I think Geffen, when they signed Sonic Youth, um, Geffen, who, Geffen Records by that time was a subsidiary, a major label subsidiary, and I think that they realized the influence that Sonic Youth, Sonic Youth had been around the indie scene. They'd been uh, signed to a number of indie labels throughout the '80s, and it had you know just been really influential um, on a lot of other bands. And I think when Geffen signed them, they thought, hey, th- this is going to be good for our credibility as a label among these indie bands that we would like to sign. And so um, once they signed Sonic Youth and Thurston Moore became kind of a mentor to Kurt Cobain, um, that was really helpful for Geffen getting Nirvana to sign with them. Um, I, there's a quote from the book from the, uh, you know other, other, other label executives who had maybe wanted to sign Nirvana, and they were like, well, Geffen had Thurston Moore and we and Sonic Youth, and we couldn't really compete with that because that was that was where Kurt Cobain wanted to be. And then, yeah, and and that was a key role. And then you you talk about the the explosion of Nevermind, and I think you do a good job of of summing up what it was about Cobain's music that appealed to so many people. You say, uh, you know, the grittiness of the album's subject matter and the authenticity in Cobain's voice offered a counterpoint to the fantasy world of glam metal, where mm-hmm. glam had offered escapism. Nirvana offered understanding and catharsis. Yeah, yeah, I think that's, I think that's really true. I think that um, in the same way we were talking about how in the rock star culture of the 1970s, um, it wasn't necessarily, it was more hero worship than something people could relate to on a personal level. Um, you know, and, and, and heavy metal, and then when that, once that became kind of glam metal in the, in the 80s, um, there wasn't a lot, I mean, there, there wasn't a lot of personal introspection. It was a lot of kind of fantasy lyrics about, you know, strippers and, and booze and, you know, being a rock star and how awesome that was, you know, and this idea that in the poison lyric, you know, uh, don't need nothing but a good time. Well, I think there were a lot of people who did need more than a good time, who were hurting, who needed something to relate to. And I think they found, um, a lot of people found that in a lot of the alternative bands, but particularly in Kurt Cobain's lyrics, I mean, he was somebody who wrote as an outsider who was expressing pain that people could relate to. Um, and I think that was a big factor in, in why they became so popular. And then, but you, one, another thing that I think that book is valuable is that it points out that it wasn't just boom, teen, smells like teen spirit comes out instantly, you know, the alternative music wipes away the commercial slate. Yeah, they did knock Michael Jackson off of number one on the label charts, but as you point out, Def Leppard's Pyromania album spent more time at number one than uh, the Nevermind album did. Um, talk about what was going on in 1992 in the music industry besides alternative and and glam, the remains of glam metal. Yeah, I think that the, I think that one thing I think it goes both ways, both both prior to um, Nevermind and after that. I think that people because people like to have shorthand for different cultural moments, they're like, yeah, never mind, changed everything. Um, and it was immediate. And it, it the kind of the culture, the, 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 the cultural picture that's painted of never mind is, is as if there weren't 10 years of infrastructure building among the alternative scene that led to that point. You know, you'd had a lot of breakthroughs 
of popular alternative bands um, here and there prior to Nevermind. I mean, you had a band like U2, which we now think of as a as really a mainstream band. They really were an alternative band in the 80s that had just managed to kind of cross over into the popular consciousness. Same with The Cure, The, Depe- the Cure, Depeche Mode. And then um, R.E.M. You know, ha- had a huge number one album in 1991 prior to Nevermind. Out of Time was just a just a huge album that was everywhere. Losing My Religion, um, it, you know, if things had been remembered a little bit differently and, and Nirvana hadn't been, you know, kind of perceived as the end-all be-all, I mean, but Losing My Religion was everywhere in the summer of, of 1991. That was, that was a really huge song um, out of the alternative scene. Um, so th- this, th- um, the stage had been set for Nirvana and Nevermind prior to them coming on the scene. There already had been alternative breakthroughs. I think what was different was that after Nevermind, um, you had, you started getting more and more alternative, um, bands that were able to break through to the mainstream. Um, but yeah, in in 1992, you had, um, U2 had Octung Baby, which was just a hugely popular alternative, um, album. Pearl Jam had their big breakthrough in 92, a number of bands that had been in the scene, alternative scene for a while, had had big records. The Cure, Wish was a big record that year. REM's Automatic for the People. So you had all these different alternative bands that were just starting to break through. But you still had, you know, I, I think it was the Def, Def Leppard album. It wasn't Pyromania, which was early, but it was Adrenalize. Oh, uh, yeah, like, you're right, you're right. It's, right. Not, it's, not a, it's not, you know, like... Even even Def Leppard fans don't think of that as being one of their best albums. But you know, it was a that was a number one album in 1992. You had you know Guns N' Roses big Use Your Illusion albums were um, were came out at the end of 1991 and were on the charts in 1992. You had um, country music that was a breakthrough year for country music in 1992. I think that might have been when Garth Brooks had his first big hit. And so there are a lot of different, and hip hop was coming into its own and starting to, you know, starting to be more and more hip hop albums um, that were, that were being commercially popular. So you had a lot of different stuff happening in 1992. It wasn't just, it wasn't like it was just Nirvana that was happening at that time. But then quickly Cobain sort of sours on his success, or at least publicly. And and you uh, documented a pretty, you know, uh, crucial quote about Cobain from from his biography uh, biographer Charles Cross where you know Kurt would whine in interviews that MTV played his videos too much but privately he would call his managers and complain when he thought they didn't play them enough mhm and, and yeah i think that i think that goes back to the kind of inner conflict that he had i mean on the one hand he had to kind of publicly um, complain about his success because that was what was expected of somebody who was from the come came out of the indie scene and was skeptical of commercial um, success and commercial power. And so he he wanted to maintain and have that image. He didn't want to be seen as someone who was creating his music just simply to be popular and be commercially successful. But at the same time, he did want to be popular and commercially successful. So I think that that was. Um, those tensions, the more popular Nirvana became and the more success they had, those tensions just became, um, you know, they, they came more to the fore. And then he, and he also turns on Pearl Jam pretty viciously in the press. And, you know, you, you yeah. talk about how Jeff Ament and also Steve Turner of Mudhoney, who, who had broken up Green River, you know, because he disagreed with uh, 
Ament and Stone Gossard's commercial and metal aspirations. Um, but he defended Jeff Ament and was, you know, pointing out that, look, Jeff Ament was in the scene back when Cobain was still going to Sammy Hagar concerts. Right, right, right. I think that was part of the thing. I, I, I think that that just, that revealed some of the ignorance of Cobain as to what the Seattle scene had been like. Cause like you, like you had said earlier, they were latecomers to that scene. They weren't there necessarily in the mid eighties when green river was happening. And the guys from Pearl jam were real, were, you know, signed to home homestead records and doing indie tours and all that type of stuff. And, and really did have deep roots in kind of this indie alternative sensibility um, along with mud honey and a lot of these other bands. And so I think, I, I don't know to what extent, he was trying to fabricate, you know, Pearl Jam's backstory, or if he just, he may, he just might not have been, you know, fully aware of it, um, at that time. But I think that once, um, Pearl Jam kind of started eclipsing Nirvana in popularity, I think there may have been some jealousy there that motivated some of that as well. Yeah. And, and this takes place in the context of, of 1993, which you point out is really the high watermark of, true alternative music in the sense of uh, an alternative to the mainstream and a very, uh, you know, Catholic and polygot uh, sort of thing. You've got everybody, you know, you do have sort of grunge imitator bands like Stone Temple Pilots coming along or grunge metal bands like Alice in Chains, but you also have, you know, Tori Amos and uh, Porno for Pyros and Depeche Mode and Duran Duran, uh, you know, Soul Asylum, all these, all these different bands breaking up and, and you, sort of summarize it as, as the year that Misfits won. Yeah, I, you could say that. I, I think that it was the high watermark, not necessarily of alternative music generally, but of the alternative scene. Um, through 1993, there was still that diversity of music. So when alternative music, there were, I think, I think it's 30 different bands from the alternative scene got gold records, gold or platinum records in, in 1993, which is just would have been, you know, completely unthinkable a few years prior. These were all bands that were, that had been underground bands and this was an underground scene. So all of a sudden, all of these bands in all of their diversity are breaking through to the mainstream. And, and like you say, it wasn't just grungy stuff like Nirvana and Pearl Jam and Alice in Chains. It was, you know, yeah, you had Tori Amos and you had Morrissey and you had, the Breeders, and you had uh, Belly, and you had all these female-fronted brands, you know, uh, um, 10,000 Maniacs, and the Sundays, and all these different things, the Cranberries, and then you, but you still had all these uh, bands that just sounded totally different from each other, but still were under this loose umbrella of, of alternative music. So, as far as the scene, as a diverse scene um, that was kind of creatively independent, um, this, yeah, 93 was definitely the high watermark. Uh, for that scene. And then, in the next year, Kurt Cobain uh, kills himself, and that changes okay. everything. Yeah, I think it, it, it changed everything, but it, it, I think everything was changing anyway. I think there's, there's a couple chapters in the book that go through all the changes that were happening in, in kind of the uh, music industry and the, the corporate structure of the music industry and of the media industry in general. It wasn't just music. It had to do with, you know, the way that radio stations were, um, there's all this corporate consolidation going on and, and companies being bought by international conglomerates. And you had decisions being made at record labels, um, not necessarily by the music people, but by the business people. And so that happened to coincide with Kurt, Kurt Cobain's death where, um, at just as, at just at the time that he dies and, 
um, this mythology starts building up around him and Nirvana and a lot of the, the, the kind of the, um, their, some of their failures and some of the discontents people had with them were all kind of swept away. And they, and everybody was all of a sudden kind of, um, Nirvana had always been their favorite band and, and Nirvana was always, was very important to them. And as this mythology was going on, um, it happened to coincide with this, co- this, um, these changes at the record labels where record executives were kind of looking at this. It gave them a very convenient template to capitalize on this popularity that had just happened in alternative music where you had 30 alternative bands that were popular. All of a sudden the record labels are like, wow, how do we capitalize on this? What is this alternative music? And whereas if Kurt Cobain hadn't died, it's possible that they, that the, uh, they would have been forced to, um, you know, grapple with the fact that the the alternative scene had all these different kinds of music in it. But this mythology that kind of built up around Cobain after he died, um, and they became kind of the symbol of what alternative music was, and it gave a very easy template for the major labels to um, follow as they tried to commercialize alternative music. And and this is one of the I think the key insights of the book is you describe the way the bottom sort of fell out of the record industry even though it was in an enormously profitable period. This has nothing. This is way pre Napster. This is during the you know let's sell them the Beatles catalog on CD again period for nineteen nine you know for twice the price. These these companies mm-hmm. are rolling in money, and yet because of some sea changes in the bigger corporate picture because of mergers and acquisitions mainly. Um, you know, you describe how Warner Brothers records, the first big crack uh, in the bottom falling out was when Atari uh, collapsed in the early 80s and lost $500 million and, and they bring in a hatchet man, uh, uh, Robert Morgado, to start laying people off. And, and Morgado ends up taking over the whole company and, and these old lions lose, even though they're making a fortune for these big conglomerates. Yeah, I mean, what happens is, I mean, when a... When a record label becomes part of a larger conglomerate where their their fortunes are then tied to all of the different companies that are in this conglomerate, like you say, when Atari loses $500 million, you have to make cuts at the record label, even though that record label is doing well. So that once all the major labels were bought up by kind of international corporate companies, um, that started happening all over the place. And not only that, but... The, the the reason these international companies bought the record labels um, was because they were uh, they were generating enormous profits. So they wanted to maximize the profits that the record labels were creating, and they didn't necessarily understand um, the the nuts and bolts of how the record how the music industry worked. They were just trying to get to they they were just seeing the bottom line. How do we increase the bottom line as quickly as possible? So what you ended up having was even in the midst of this, in the 1990s, you know, record sales were at an all-time high. And this is, yeah, like you say, this is prior to Napster, prior to MP3s or any of that stuff. They were actually shrinking the number of bands that they were, um, that they had on these labels. They were cutting artist rosters, which seems like that's not what you would want to do. But what that meant was um, these bands that in the 1980s might have existed on a, 
a major label and you know rem they didn't have a platinum record till their fifth record you know same with u2 they didn't have platinum record till their fourth or fifth record these bands that had been given these long periods of this long incubation time to build a following to find themselves musically and eventually become commercially successful that wasn't this that wasn't the environment anymore at the major record labels in the 1990s you had to hit quickly or you were going to get dropped and eventually what that led to was, um, well, first, what it first led to after um, Kurt Cobain's death and when they wanted to kind of commercialize um, uh, alternative music was signing a bunch of bands that, that at, at least to their ears sounded like Nirvana or um, were like Nirvana in terms of their attitudes or ethos. They, were, they wanted to sign, you know, kind of angsty. It ended up being just almost all angsty, white, male, heavy rock bands. Um, and that created a certain homogeneity in the music that was very different than the alternative scene, even though it's still called alternative music at the time, it was very different than the, um, diversity of the alternative scene that had been before that. But eventually the, um, uh, the record labels decided to stop focusing on rock music altogether. I mean, it was much easier to get directly to the bottom line if you cut cut the, cut the bands out of the process and just, and you started signing, um, more kind of pop idol type bands. This is when you start getting in sync and backstreet boys and Britney. And before I get to that, I want, I want you to talk a little bit about Pearl jams attempts to rebel uh, against Ticketmaster and the whole NMTV and the whole record industry and, and how that played out. Well, what's fascinating about, um, the, some of the Nirvana, Nirvana mythology is that Nirvana became came to be seen as these um, kind of punk idealists, and Pearl Jam, simply by virtue of their commercial success, came to be viewed kind of as sellouts who weren't quite as good a band and weren't quite as you know devoted to the indie um, alternative cause. But in reality, as we've already been talking about, I mean, Kurt Cobain was, wasn't a purist himself. I mean, he was interested in kind of commercial success. And Pearl Jam, as it turned out, became one of the greatest champions for artistic freedom and fi- fighting kind of the pressures of um, the corporate music business in the second half of, uh, of the 90s. I mean, they, they, went, they, they, they took you know, Ticketmaster to court, um, saying that they had a monopoly on... Um, Ticket prices, which they which they did then and and still do to this day, um, and because of their monopoly, were able to charge these kind of huge fees on on, on tickets. And um, Pearl Jam said that this, this isn't fair to our fans. Why do they have to be these huge markup on tickets? Um, we want to go with a different ticketing agency. And and what they found was that there weren't any ticketing agencies to go to. Um, uh, Ticketmaster had all of these deals with promoters across the country, kind of these exclusive deals that um, if you didn't uh, if you didn't bring X band, if, if some if one of your if you were a label and you didn't and you tried to use an alternative ticketing agency for one band, then Ticketmaster wasn't going to handle any other bands, and, and they had all these kind of anti-competitive practices, and so all of that we would not necessarily have known about those practices if Pearl Jam hadn't. Uh, taken them to court and made all that a public record. What's what, what's what's interesting is that Pearl Jam ultimately loses their case, um, but um, I think it went a long way towards creating kind of some indie credibility for Pearl Jam. That they by 
by you know the end of the '90s, Pearl Jam was I, I think had what uh, was perceived by a lot of people as having indie credibility and for fighting kind of against uh, the mainstream corporate powers. And so before we close out, I wanted there's two two uh, musicians I want to talk about that you cover that represent new models in the way music is made and promoted. And the first is Alanis Morissette, who mm-hmm. you know exploded sort of in a sim. I mean, uh, to a fan. You've never heard of this person. She comes on MTV. She's got this passionate, good music. Uh, you know, telling a very angsty story from a woman's perspective. In a lot of ways, it seems very similar to Kurt Cobain uh, and the grunge explosion a few years earlier. But behind the scenes, it was a totally different process. How did that work? What was different about Alanis Morissette? Well, I think that the, uh, Alanis Morissette, um, I mean, there had been throughout the history of popular music, there had been this kind of template. I mean, and this existed alongside kind of the rock music template, but there was this template where, um, um, and this it goes all the way back to, you know, folks like Frank Sinatra or Dean Martin or somebody like that back in the 50s. I mean, they would sign, a record label would sign a uh, sign an artist, and the record label would hire the musicians who played with them. The re- record label would hire the songwriter to write the songs for them. They'd hire a touring band. They, they'd st- they would handle the, the image making of the artist. And their, their, you know, marketing department would hire the image making of the artist so that, you know, it, it was hard to tell how much of that artist's persona and music was a result of that. Was it the artist's idea or was it the label's idea? Was this the result of, you know, um, was there, was the themes of their music? Was it the result of, you know, the individual creative instincts of the artist or was it, did, did, did this more have to do more with uh, the label's market research and what they thought would sell and what they wanted their songwriters to write. So it was all very muddy. Um, and that changed in the 1960s when you had, you know, artists like Bob Dylan and the Beatles who were writing their own songs and crafting their own personas. And so for a long time in rock music, that was the template. Like there, the pop, the pop, template still existed, you know, you still had, you know, purely pop artists all the way through the seventies, eighties, nineties, but for rock musicians, they got to, they got to have a lot more autonomy. They got to set the tone. They got to write their own songs. They got to choose their own producers. They got to, you know, they didn't necessarily have to use the label stylist. They could choose their own image, image, you know, for what they wanted to be perceived as. Well, what's interesting about Alanis Morissette in the, in the 1990s, was um, again as they're as these major labels are trying to figure out the best way to commercialize alternative music, they're like, well, what if we kind of try and use that pop model? Like, let's try and find someone who's a singer and sign this person. And and this was the case with Alanis Morissette. She'd previously, you know, been a child actor on Nickelodeon, and she'd had this kind of pop career, you know, that she, that was, you know, she was in. Uh, in Canada, she was Canadian, and in Canada, she had a previous career as kind of a teen pop artist along the lines of Debbie Gibson or Tiffany or something. She was kind of this teen pop idol. And um, when she came to, when, when um, one of the folks at her label in Canada wanted to bring her over and have her break in America, uh, her manager said, the, the, uh, her new manager said, no, we're, we're going to, she needs to have a different image. So let's try and her up with a songwriter who can write some more kind of grungy um, alternative style songs. They end up grabbing Glenn Ballard, who was um, a famous songwriter. He'd written hits for Wilson Phillips and Michael Jackson and so forth. But um, 
so she had a co-writer that she wrote with. Um, the label was very instrumental in, in how she was presented style-wise. So unlike some of these other artists like Cobain or um, some of the alternative artists who were perceived as being very authentic, whose music was being perceived as very personal, um, it was hard to tell with Alanis Morissette if you knew that backstory um, how much of this is her vision and how much of it is the label's vision, how much of this is a very calculated commercial plot to um, kind of capitalize um, the popularity of the alternative scene um, and how much of this is her, you know, her, her actual creative vision. It was, it, was, it was hard to tell. So you have people like Joni, people were comparing last more set to Joni Mitchell and Joni Mitchell says, no, I'm nothing like that. I'm, I'm, a, I'm a creative artist. You know, Alanis Morissette has these people writing her songs and telling her how to dress, and she's kind of stylized into this part, and she's like, that's not me. So, so that was going on. So it was, it was different. You know, I think it was different than a lot of the uh, alternative acts that had come before. And then sort of the next step in the devolution of alternative is is the launch Interscope Records launch of Limp Biscuit. And they mm-hmm. they they had a new twist, kind of the way Led Zeppelin had a new twist on Radio Payola. Uh, this is a completely new angle on Radio Payola. How did this work? Well, yeah, I mean they they were they um at the time uh Interscope Records would buy, you know, would would pay a radio station to um uh, to to play a, a Limp Biscuit song, and what the and in order to make that legal, because at this point payola had been deemed illegal, you couldn't just pay a radio station to play your song. Um, it was it was the, at the end of the at the after they played the song, they'd say this song was brought to you by Flip Interscope. I mean Flip being the sub label that Limp Biscuit was on under Interscope. Um, and so it, it was legal, but it's still, you know, to people who didn't like the idea that um, a record label could buy their way into your ears, that was, you know, that was perceived as, as kind of an underhanded way of breaking a band. And then, uh, you know, they follow it up with Total Request Live on MTV, which ostensibly, you know, was a call-in, audience-driven request show, but they found a way to manipulate it. Yeah, I mean that that was that was the case for not just Limp Biscuit, but for you know a lot of bands. I mean, it wasn't like the the pool you had to choose from, you know, as far as what videos you had to choose from. By the late '90s, um, MTV was far from you know in the '80s, MTV had played you know music 24 hours a day, but in the in the late '90s, they only had a few you know music slots. So if you were able to get your bands, if you were a label that was able to again through some you know corporate back channel get your band played um, on MTV enough, then it was one of the few videos even available to be voted on. So um, Interscope had to deal with, you know, MTV and was able to get Limp Biscuit promoted that way as well and get Limp Biscuit on like MTV spring break special and Christmas special and all these different things. So Limp Biscuit was all over MTV before they were really popular, which is interesting. People think, Oh, MTV plays people who are, you know, already popular, but it, it, it wasn't, it wasn't an organic situation. You had these kind of cross, um, cross platform marketing schemes that were going on. And you also had a, a critical structure that's justifying this and that's saying that, you know, bands like Limp Biscuit are speaking to the people by taking these corporate sponsorships, whereas bands like Radiohead are elitist. So why not shift in the dynamic? Well, yeah, I mean, there, there was a whole shift that happened, um, in the late nineties and early two thousands. And I think it was, uh, it's just, I, there's probably, I think there's two or three chapters devoted on 
to this on the, in the book. And so it's a longer story that I'll be able to get into fully here. But I think that there was this idea that um, rock, this, and it was true that rock music criticism had lost some of its credibility um, in the sixties and seventies. The point was trying to, you know, let listeners know what was the better music and what was the worst music by the late nineties, rock criticism as rock music had become kind of threatened by other types of genres. It was kind of uh, rock criticism was promoting rock music as inherently important or as inherently good just because it was rock music. And people started to see through that. And, 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 uh, and you had people who were like, yeah, that's a problem too, because um, it, it's, it's kind of reinforcing this, traditionally at this point, it, you know, you're dealing in the alternative area it was mostly white male artists and it was harder to, to make it as a female artist or a person of color. So, I mean, they, they, they saw this whole rock mythology and this evolution of rock, rock music criticism as bad. So a lot of critics went in this other direction, um, which came to be known as poptimism, which was, you know, um, uh, the music, they, they would look at the charts I think somewhat naively and say that whatever was popular was the best because the people were choosing with their wallets, right? You know, like, uh, like that the, uh, the best album, uh, that we shouldn't discount the album at the top of the charts because that's what people are choosing. Um, why would we listen to a critic who's saying this obscure album is great when the people have chosen, this is actually more democratic to look at, um, pop charts as a arbiter of taste. Um, but that's, as the book goes into in detail, that's, that's kind of a naive way of looking at that because, uh, again, the music that's popular has a lot to do with who a major label has chosen to promote. So, um, if a major label chooses to promote a certain type of artist, obviously, or a certain artist, that obviously that artist has a much better chance of being at the top of the charts. Cool, and we've chewed through our time. It's been a delight, Adam. This is Adam Caress, the author of The Day Alternative Music Died. I'm Nate Wilcox, your host of Let It Roll Podcast. And Adam, thanks very much for coming on the show. This has been a fascinating explication of what happened to alternative music in the 90s. Thanks so much for having me. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for listening. Next week, author Peter Doggett joins Nate for the first of two episodes discussing his book, Electric Shock. Recorded music from the gramophone to the iPhone. Be sure and subscribe to the Let It Roll podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Podomatic, and check out our website at letitrollpodcast.com. The Day Alternative Music Died, The Struggle Between Art and Money for the Soul of Rock is available wherever fine books are sold. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. 
and why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. Fantasy Points.